Slate spoiler specials are brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER2. Welcome to Slate's Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm David Hagland, and I'm joined uh, not by Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic, but by June Thomas, a culture critic for Slate. Hello, June. Hey, David. This is a very special spoiler special because <laughs> we're not discussing a movie. We're going to be discussing all 13 episodes of season one of House of Cards, which became available on Netflix on Friday. June and I both managed to watch all 13 <laughs> by Saturday night. Right. And, David, I was... You know, that's the kind of thing I do every weekend. But I was very surprised that you did it because you're a kind of guy who I imagine like reading books and going to movies and actually leaving the house and the couch. I should have been reading some books, but it was cold out. It was. My girlfriend and I had no plans and we just clicked next again and again and again. Awesome. So definitely one of the things we want to talk about is why we kept clicking next. But maybe first we should get into some of the plot of this show. Right. So I'll kick off. So this is an American version of a British show, a BBC show from 1990. Um, House of Cards, of course, makes a little more sense in reference to uh, the House of Commons. Um, But I was impressed by how much Bo Willimon, the author, uh, differentiated it and made it a believably American show. Um, But it tells the story of Frank Underwood, who is the chief whip in the house. Uh, the majority whip, yeah. Yeah, majority whip. And he has, thank you, he has, you know, he's he's a... Well, he's a Democrat. And right. And he represents some southern district. So, in South Carolina, because they went to Charleston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although that was to go to the... Anyway. Um, so he's a, the great manipulator in Congress. He's been in Congress for many terms. Uh, he's a powerful man. He has a beautiful and rather cold wife, uh, played really very well by Robin Wright, I was surprised by how good she was. She's terrific. Yeah. We don't see her enough, I don't No, think. and I know I just want to have her on screen every week. Um, and she also is a bit of a DC uh, macker. She runs a nonprofit. And together they have a kind of Macbeth, Lady Macbeth relationship. At the beginning, he's disappointed, to say the least, because he had been promised the Secretary of State job. Uh, but the new president, who he helped uh elect passes him over reneges on the promise and because he needs him in in uh, in congress right and i think most of that people would grab from the trailer yeah one of the interesting things about watching uh, so much so quickly is how the other characters come to the fore if you've only seen the trailer you you might suspect that oh it's all about kevin spacey and robin wright and kate mara who plays this reporter for the washington herald right. which i gather we're supposed to think of as the washington post i believe so she's this young metro reporter who's a real go-getter and manages to uh get become you know get offered the job of white house correspondent after she's fed a bunch of stories by frank underwood right. kevin spacey character uh, which he does on the condition that she reports exactly what he wants her to do, no questions asked, and she agrees because mm-hmm. she, like him, is completely Machiavellian, just wants to get ahead. Right. But then, uh, you know, within uh, a few episodes, Corey Stoll, as this Pennsylvania congressman, mm-hmm. really uh, comes to the fore as well, and yep. I think he's the best thing about the series. I agree. I loved him. It. I mean, he... He was very likable. You know, he, he's, his struggle was real, which I thought was a great – you know, it wasn't just that uh, his character, Peter Russo, who was really just a, 
you know, he was just a puppet that Frank Underwood was manipulating. And it could have been just exactly that level of, oh, this is just some some guy whose strings he's pulling. But he became a very likable, very real character, very vulnerable um, that I was rooting for and was very interested in and, and really... You know, nothing in the show is particularly realistic. And so it's not, you know, I don't want to even start those conversations because it's just not. But it was about kind of falling for the characters or learning to hate the characters. Although, actually, even though some of these people were really reprehensible, I didn't actually hate anyone, really. Yeah, I think that's true. And there are some somewhat odd uh, moments that where the show goes out of its way to humanize even the Kevin Spacey character. Right. So, for instance, we get a whole episode where he goes back to what they call the Sentinel, which mm-hmm. I assume is the Citadel. I would think so. It's a military school back in South Carolina, and they're naming a library after him, and so he's there for the ceremony, and he's brought these, uh, or he's invited these three, I think, three yes. buddies yes. Uh, with whom he used to sing a cappella right. and does again, yes. and with whom, as we we uh, gradually realized with one of whom he had some kind of gay affair, some right. kind of romance right. when they were high school kids. Yeah. And it seems to be a very positive relationship. And you all, they also give the sense that he's kind of pausing for a moment, like, should I rekindle this? Even though they now both are married, the, the other guy has kids. And the other guy says, I was just ha- just glad to be able to make you happy or to please you or something like that, which is on the Sounds weird, but at the same time is very believable and and does feel convincing and real. And I don't really know why that's necessary for Frank's character, but I – I bought it, let's just say. Yeah, I did too. And, and I, it's fair to say that he's presented as a heterosexual man yep. who had this fling yep. with another man when he was young. But he's not, a, he's not closeted. Right. This isn't right. some right. You know, key to his psychology or anything like that. And that, I absolutely agree. However, there was – for both Frank and Claire – Claire, I don't know if I said that was his wife's name earlier. For both Frank and Claire, you have a feeling that the two of them are a unit – they're very close. They share everything, including cigarettes, which is a bit of a, a motif that runs through the show. Um, you know, they, that's where they, you know, really get real, I guess. Yeah, they sit by the window and yeah. smoke together. Yeah, but it doesn't. But they also, you know, they have they have jealousies of each other's relationships. But you feel like these relationships, in fact, probably all of their relationships, are kind of mercenary and transactional. That. You don't know that they actually have feelings, even for each other. Right. In fact, one of the things that grabbed me relatively early on and which the show disappointed me on somewhat later was that relationship. Mm-hmm. That it's so yeah. open. You, you, you learn at some point early on that um, he knows that she's had an affair and doesn't seem particularly concerned about whether she starts it again just so long as he knows. Right. And when uh, a few episodes in – his relationship with Kate Mara, the the sexy blogger, right. becomes carnal. He tells her that too, and yeah. and she's completely fine with it as long as she's someone he can control. Right. So right. that hints at this incredibly, uh, you know, sinister relationship that mm-hmm. the two have. That's mm-hmm. all about ambition. That has nothing mm-hmm. to do with love. Uh, I think th- I expected that to go a little bit further than it did. I mean, that was a, uh, you know, I I kept hitting next. So clearly my. You know, my my problems that I had were apparently minor, but 
that was my biggest frustration with the whole show, that even though it was good enough to keep me going, I felt like they wasted endless opportunities. I mean, it was 13 hours of material and we that was really enough time to flesh out a lot of things, whether they're plots and machinations or characters, and especially on the character level, but also in a certain way in the plot. They just kind of things petered out. They did. And I'm curious whether, for instance, late in the season to, to reveal a fairly big spoiler, um, Claire uh, stabs him in the back, really. There's a, yeah. a, a, a deal. It's, there's a bill. It's called the Watershed Bill that uh, Frank really wants to get passed. And Peter Russo, the Corey Stoll congressman, uh, also really wants to get passed. But for slightly complicated reasons having to do with a nonprofit that she mm-hmm. runs, mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't persuade these two on-the-fence congressmen that Frank expects her to persuade to vote for it. And, and the bill fails. Right. Exactly. And I'd never really understood her motivations regarding her own nonprofit. It, I mean, I don't know that that was a red herring or just a kind of something that didn't work. Because, again, at the beginning, in what I think it seems like we both agree the beginning is just kind of a lot of throat clearing that, yeah. you know, it just it just gets a lot better after the first couple of episodes. But she, maybe even in the first episode, she just fires half the people on the staff. of, And you, so in a way, okay, it establishes she's kind of a bitch and she's kind of uncaring. But you never really know why she, you know, so, okay, so partly she wants to do a, make it an international organization, maybe because she thinks Frank's still going to be Secretary of State. But it's yeah, not it's clear. not very well explained. It's no. not very well explained. And her, her ambitions are, for it are, are never uh, as well uh, you know, spelled out as right. they, they should be. Right. And also this brings up a kind of larger issue with the show. And it's funny how much criticism that we're lobbying at it given that I yeah. think we both really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, is that there's really not a trace of idealism in the show. And I think that's fine. I think yeah. it still works. Yeah. But I actually think that would have gone a long way. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that we both liked uh, the Peter Russo character so much, who, even though he's not idealistic, right. at least is likable. Right. As horrible as he is, yeah. you do root for him. Right. Because, yes, although he has no ideology and he he still has – he still cares about something. Um, he cares about the people in his district um, – you know, as a friend of mine, a TV critic in Philadelphia said, you know, we also live in a universe where the Philadelphia Navy Yard is still open, which it hasn't been for many years. But, you know, he in some ways he knows that the people who elected him are going to be mad. But he also doesn't want them to lose their job. He's not he's not just concerned about his own job. He's concerned about these people. He's, he feels he has a connection with people. You kind of see that he's had a horrible time. His mother's a bitch. Um, and yeah, you you like him, and even though again, it's it's not that he has ideology. It's not because he believes in in you know principles. He cares about people, and it seems to be the only person with genuine emotions, almost. Yeah, he's given a recognizable political backstory as well right. because he's the kid up from the streets, right? And that's his whole persona. Early on, we see he has this friend who still is involved with the shipyard, who comes mm-hmm. to see him, and is presented in fairly stereotypical way as right. you know the working class guy who right. doesn't shave that regularly yeah, yeah, exactly. or whatever. I'm not exactly. sure why they had to go that far, but that's who. That's where he comes from. Yeah. And so I think you're given a sense, oh, this is, this is how he's presented himself mm-hmm. to his constituency. Mm-hmm. This is his uh, 
persona as a politician. Weirdly, Frank Underwood doesn't quite have that. I mean, I mentioned on the uh, Culture Gab Fest this week that as a white male Southern Democrat, yes. he's a little bit of an anomaly. Yes. Uh, he also has a big painting of Teddy Roosevelt in his office. And even though Teddy Roosevelt is sort of a bipartisan hero now, he is a Republican. Right. And it's not clear who his political heroes would yep. be. Yep. He's really all about power. Exactly. And and you see, in one, one episode, he goes back to his home district, not for any for no positive reason it's just because he's got a problem there there's you know this weird hard to explain and really not worth explaining issue that is just might cause him to have trouble getting reelected which you think really the senate majority you know whatever the house majority leader would have a problem with that but he you know he has to go back and and you think this guy it's just about power. There's no other connection. Right. Although that is, I think, also what drives the show. Because to get in again to the spoilers, ultimately, you know, he's re- uh, refused the Secretary of State position. He has a moment of thought or a few moments of thought right, right. plotting out his great plan. And then he puts it into practice. And as the the episodes go on, and especially as you near the end – you're at least made to believe, and we can discuss whether this is persuasive or not, that all the things he's done from that moment until the end of the season were a way of setting himself up for the vice presidency. Right. uh, Which emerges later on. And the way that happens is that Peter Russo is this uh, congressman from Pennsylvania that we've been talking about. Uh, Spacey, Frank Underwood, pushes him to run for governor. So the governorship is open because the current vice president, who's just been elected, was the governor. Right. So there's going to be a special election. He pushes for Russo to run, knowing, I think we're, we're mm-hmm. uh, led yes. to believe, knowing that he could crush him when the moment came. And that he plans indeed to crush him. That, you know, that, he, that uh, Frank has an aide who we never really understand why that aide would be so loyal, why he would do something which, you know, the aide is himself – I believe, still, a recovering alcoholic. And he gets Rousseau into the program, but then completely sabotages. I mean, in, you could say he puts him to the test. Maybe he would pass the test, but the chances, it seems that no one considers for a minute that he might pass the test and, and turn down the drugs and booze and whore who's offered to him. Right. Yeah, in some ways that character, I know the character's name is Doug Stamper. I can't yes. recall the actor's name. No. But he is... Possibly the most sinister character. I mean, even more than Underwood and his wife. One, because he doesn't have the obvious public uh, power that those two have. He just works for Frank, and he does so so ruthlessly. Uh, The way that the whole Russo plot starts is that Russo is arrested for solicitation and maybe also drunk driving. Yes. And um, Frank and Doug manage to clear that uh, arrest by calling in a favor with the police commissioner who's about to run for Congress, I believe, or mayor? Maybe mayor of D.C. Yeah. So they clear that arrest and then let Russo know that they're the ones who did that and now he owes them big time. And they, you know, the idea is that they're doing this for every member of the House. Like, they just need information. They just need to have something. They need to be holding things over every single Congressman, Right. And actually, one of the things that uh, I was confused about at the end and was trying to recall is when Frank decides that he has seen his path to power, because in theory, that should only happen after he's busted Russo, because Russo's connection to Pennsylvania is crucial. 
Right. But, I'm, but in my in my memory, I think he decides before that. Oh, I've got it. Yeah, well, I have figured it out. Yeah, I mean, I guess because he has he has to get the vice president to both be so disenchanted with the position that he's currently in, so mad at the president, so feeling so useless, and then he needs to Frank needs to create a situation where, with only weeks or even days before the governor gubernatorial election, the vice president can step down and go into that position, which, first of all, you know, you can, like, we're going to have a writing vote? What, is he on the ballot? It makes, kind of makes no sense. Um, but, so he, ha- he, you know, I guess either way, if if Russo didn't fail, but right. no, that, no, that wouldn't work. He had to, yeah, he had, had to, to fail, fail and he had, because he had to get the vice president. Yeah, which made me wonder to what extent that uh, idea that is very strongly hinted at at the yeah. end, yeah. Um, Really holds water, right? Uh, because also, you know, there's a, there are a bunch of machinations early on, mm-hmm. the relevance of which right. later seem unclear. Exactly. So, for instance, the first thing he does is he sabotages the nomination for Secretary of State, right. who has essentially taken his place. This yep. guy, Michael Kern, I think is right. his name. Yes, yes. Who um, is a douche? Yes, of the first <laughs> well, order. Well, who's not on the show? <laughs> right, really? Exactly, exactly. But uh, but he sabotages him with this complicated plot that involves right. Peter Russo turning right. in a favor. Right. For him, uh, digging up this old uh, editorial that ran in a student right. newspaper. Right. Williams College, your student newspaper has never caused so much trouble. I know. I, and, and actually, I really enjoyed all of that. It was I, I really liked um, the way that was done. You get to see, you see Kern going on the news shows and totally botching the yeah. interviews. Yeah. And, and I bought all that. In fact, yeah. I think in general, the clips of news shows that we see are better done here yes, than I they agree. are on you know, in the usual yeah. sort of uh, – there's right. so many Hollywood movies that have right. done that. Right. Uh, and all of this sets up the nomination of this woman, Kathleen Durant. Why? I don't know. Yeah. How does that help him get to the vice presidency? It wasn't clear. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it was like it, maybe he wanted to be secretary of state and he put her in just because he was someone. Yeah, it didn't. I'm I'm struggling because it never made sense. And then, you know, you do have this feeling that this is a guy who just gets stuff over people and right. so now she owed him but then when he came when he came to ask for something again for Claire's nonprofit she wasn't able to come through and there didn't seem to be anything that they could do to her you know whereas right. usually you think the whole point of this man is to gain evidence against people and to be you know cruel and to mete out justice and in this case he was kind of dissed and he didn't seem to do anything about it that I can recall, right? He just kind of, well, thanks for nothing. Yeah, and in fact, I I think part of the reason this show works uh, as an addictive series, um, but which maybe uh, in hindsight feels uh, underwhelming in certain respects, is that all of these plot points they grab you as they're happening. Right. Right. I mean, it's really interesting to see them unravel that guy's yep. nomination. Yep. There's this education bill. Yep. yep. There's a terrible thing with teachers. That's just awful. <laughs> terrible in the sense that you weren't persuaded by it or you thought it was ridiculous? Uh, all of it. Yeah. Okay. Everything. I mean, it's very far-fetched because yes. the, the entire nation of teachers, I right, guess, right, goes I on guess. strike. Yeah. So no kids are in school. Right, right. And then a kid is shot in a drive-by. He yeah. would have been in school. Right. So this becomes this uh, yeah. key political weapon right. for Frank. But I, I have to say, I really like the scene between him and the union boss because the way that plot is resolved is that he 
goads the union boss in a private right. meeting right. to punch him in the face. Right. And because part of their debate up to this point has been about the you know supposedly violent tactics right. of the union, which of course were all engineered by Frank. Right. Um, this is devastating yeah. for the union boss. This would just this would not only uh, ruin his position in this debate, but it would probably ruin his career. Right. Uh, he could file criminal charges. Uh, so Frank says, "All right, look, I'm not going to press charges. This is over. I won." Yes. Sorry to interrupt from the control room, David, but I'm just going to take a moment to shout out our sponsor. This episode of the Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project. Whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project, Shutterstock sources video clips from all around the world and puts them at your fingertips. And many of the contributions to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers. Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to bring creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy. Shutterstock has sophisticated tools so you can search out and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor, and more. And Shutterstock is the complete offering. They have flexible pricing so you can download clips in HD or you can save with standard definition or web formats. As a video producer myself, I find Shutterstock a great resource for finding and downloading any kind of stock video I could need for a creative project. So you can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. No credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to a clip box. Once you decide to purchase, offer the special code SPOILER2 and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER2. We thank Shutterstock for their support. All right, David and June, back to you. I mean, I, I agree um, that I agree with what you just said about the way the plot works. It's good enough, and then you kind of forget about it. And that actually became a, the one time that it became a problem for me because there aren't any previously ons in this. You know, you just keep pressing next, I guess, was when toward the end, I, I felt that the last couple of hours were the weakest bit. It just like it really didn't come together. But they suddenly bring up um, the guy who had actually written the editorial and they just mentioned his name and they didn't really give any context, which in, I usually applaud that approach to storytelling where you don't, you know, hold the audience's hand too much. But in this case, I just couldn't remember who, what, whose name is, who is this, whatever it was, Peter Koperniak or whatever, like, who is that? And I don't think it was unreasonable of me not to remember, you know, to have kind of semi forgotten because, you know, 11 or 12 hours had passed or whatever it was. It was significant amount of time enough that even though I did indeed, you know, marathon the show, the the plot, the, the details of the machinations had, had kind of fallen away. Yeah, I think that's fair. What's funny is that those machinations, it's just so fun to watch somebody yeah. doing that sort of thing, manipulating people in this way that, I mean, I'm t- totally game for season two. Yeah, yeah. I would have started it on yes, Sunday exactly. if, it, if it had been available. Exactly. And I do think the show does a good job of setting up the next season while also providing something like closure for yes. the first season. Yes. Because when it's over, you know that he is going to be the nominee for vice president. Right, right. But you don't know if he's going to actually succeed yep. in getting that position. Yep. Yep. Uh, and there are some things hanging over his head. And we don't know what exactly his relationship is with um, Kate Mara's character at that point, the reporter. Yep. Yep. Um, that has frayed in various ways. Yep. Uh, it you know becomes sexual. Then they stop that. Then they start it again. It's not clear whether they can have the same professional relationship. And in a way, she also learns – you know, there's there during the show. There's this very conflict. She has a conflicted relationship with a senior woman reporter, and as the show kind of progresses, 
her um, Zoe Barnes, that's the Kate Mara character's allegiance to Frank, kind of fades, and her relationship with the with the other woman kind of blossoms, and the other reporter kind of gets her into the real chase. You know, right. the, r- really being a reporter, not just being fed lines by a highly placed source, and. You know, really, it's all very unrealistic. But I, I enjoyed that kind of move, that shift from the manipulator to the, yeah, you know, she's actually doing her job. And you see, gosh, she really could be good at her job. Right. Especially uh, assuming that we have no more conversations about how the news media is doomed by the Internet. Because <laughs> exactly. Because fell with such a thud. Although, you know, I have to say that um, there was a, you know, I, I you know, I was looking at Twitter while I was watching, and, and there were people saying, "Can you believe that is the most ridiculous, unrealistic?" You know that essentially Zoe Barnes turns down the chance of becoming the Washington Herald's um, White House reporter, and she declines the offer partly because Frank tells her not to, essentially. But you know, it actually to me that does seem like a really good career move, and yeah. she essentially goes to. Politico, although, you know, they have the sense to say, you remember what Politico was two years ago? Well, <laughs> Slugline is that now. And it's the weirdest office. It's like an, it's just such a horrible office. And a, but you think, well, actually, yeah, what, why would she want to be a White House correspondent and just sit in briefings and, you know. Right, and be fed talking yeah. points. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I actually think that part of her story yeah. makes perfect sense yeah. to me. Yeah. And it also makes sense when this uh, older female reporter then also leaves yeah. Uh, the Herald and joins her. Yeah. And when season one closes, they're now on the trail of Frank. They have basically figured it out. Yes. Or they're at least very close to figuring out all of the things that he has done to uh, to put himself in this position. And it's hinted that maybe in season two, that'll be part of what right. happens. Right. Um, the other big thing that happens near the end, and this makes me less hopeful about season two, but maybe they'll somehow replace him, is that Peter Russo dies. Um, in what is easily the gravest of Frank Underwood's many sins, right. um, after Russo has this meltdown, um, and uh, you know he's set up by Doug Stamper with a prostitute who mm-hmm. he had already slept with once before. It's right. the same one he right. was arrested with. Although he doesn't remember. Yeah, he doesn't remember her, but she remembers him. And uh, Stamper, who has you know um, since that arrest gone and found her and put her up in someone's and house sincerely and sincerely helped job. her. Yeah. Right. He then sets her up to to sabotage uh, Russo to get him drinking again, mm-hmm. to have sex with him. Uh, and then he has a radio interview the very next morning that is crucial, yep. and he's drunk. Right. And he, he and he handles it horribly. He swears on the air, and it's the end of his career. And he's drinking again, and he's depressed. Uh, but then Frank manages to lock him into his garage under his apartment, mm-hmm. leave the car running, mm-hmm. make it look like a suicide. Right. And in the British version, which the, which this Netflix version, you know, really did shift away from but that's kind of the start of a next level of escalation for Francis Urquhart in the British version that he kind of becomes not a homicidal maniac exactly but you know once he pops his cherry he you know he gets worse and worse (laughs) he kills again (laughs) see I hope that the show doesn't go down that road because okay another uh, bit of praise for the show is that while Frank is terrible um, 
And while various aspects of the show, as we've already discussed, are not particularly plausible, mm-hmm. he's not killing people left and right. Yeah. He's not even responsible for other people right. killing people, which is one of the things that Hollywood thrillers do all the time, which yes. drives me crazy. Yes. So, for instance, in a movie that I thought was a bit overpraised, Michael Clayton, there's all this killing going on. It's yeah. actually, you know, not that easy right. to kill high-profile people. Yep. And 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 not attract any attention. Well, and in, you know, I have to say that what Frank does and what Francis Urquhart did in the British, in a way, they are just making sure that somebody who kind of wants to kill himself succeeds. Right. You know, the, their behavior is suicidal in the long term, and right. and the guy just kind of puts them out of the. You know, right. In the British one, they actually says it was a mercy killing. I don't know if there was any. I don't believe there was any specific verbiage like that in the U.S. version. But you have a feeling that he's just. You know, he's just avoiding any more humiliation for the, right. for the poor man. One thing I did want to mention that I just kind of saw on Twitter before we started to to, uh, to come in here and talk about this. But Alyssa Rosenberg had a tweet today where she said that one of the things that's, that she liked least about the show was that Frank was essentially the only smart person in D.C. You know, he was the great man of machinations no one else was capable of any kind of you know no one was at his level he he and Doug who was just working in his service were the only people who knew how to work the system everyone else was just a bunch of dupes and that was too bad I think like yeah I think he needs a nemesis of yeah, some kind yeah. I mean uh, Linda Vasquez who's the president's chief of staff yeah. when she first appears you think oh maybe she's on to Frank and she's right. that clever but actually right. she's a total dupe no, as well she is. the president is kind of amusingly presented as really dopey right. I mean it, you know it's not a, a caricature but he just does yeah. not seem yeah. clued in right. um, and you're right I don't think the only person who even comes to mind is, is this guy Remy exactly. Remy Danton right. who is a lobbyist I believe y- y- you know he is yes yeah who used to be um, Frank's press uh, secretary, press secretary. Yep. and it sort of makes sense that someone right. who worked for Frank would now become this operator. Although that was why I had hopes for Linda Vasquez, because she also apparently had worked for Frank, and he'd, you know, he'd gotten her into that, he'd machinated her right into that position, but then she, yeah, she was blind yeah. and well, and they end up working hand in hand, even though she doesn't really right. know what's going on. Right. I, I would like to see them. Um, turn her character into some kind of antagonist yep. in season two because I think she at least still has the potential yeah. to seem that savvy. Yeah, um, yeah, and I do think they need to replace the Peter Russo character. They need to somehow and, – and they should not do so with, um, with uh, Claire Underwood's paramour. No. This New York artist who just is so uninteresting. And yes. that, I mean, was one of the, in hindsight, big disappointments of season one is that they spend a lot of time with Claire and this yeah. guy. Yeah. And those scenes are dull. No. Every, I mean, it's like the only – I loved Robin Wright. I kind of loved Claire's character, but in the end, all that they did was kind of sketch in a few things. Oh, she's going through changes. Maybe it's the change. Maybe she's questioning, you know, some of her allegiances, some of the choices that she's made. But in the end, all you can say is, well, maybe. Right. And so one of the things that she maybes is she, you know, rekindles an old affair. But it goes nowhere. And then and I would say that one of the very worst scenes in the whole thing was, so he's a New York artist. And of course, he lives in a beautiful loft and he has a party. And it's just like the most cliched artist party yeah. with, you know, some 
skinny chick, you know, gets asked Claire to dance and they're kind of, you know, you think, oh, my God, what is yeah, going I, I, on here? I, I turned to my girlfriend and said, oh, apparently they went to the 1960s <laughs> because it was like those scenes in Mad Men yes, where like yes, the beatnik yes. party is like, where is this? Exactly. It's, it's totally implausible. And worse, it, it, it kind of um, makes her character more conventional, yes. weirdly, yes. because the relationship she has with Frank is so strange yeah. and compellingly so. And you think, oh, who is this woman that mm-hmm. she has this totally open but totally sinister marriage mm-hmm. and has her own ambitions? But then she starts to think, maybe I wish I had a baby. Yes. Maybe I really should have gone for true love with yes. this artist. Yes. And really all she needs to do is focus on her origami. Right. <laughs> that was another – that whole detail with the yeah. homeless man outside. I mean – or, or let's also talk about Frank's great connection, which is with Frank – or what, what is the name of the – Freddy, the, oh, Freddy, the barbecue yeah. light. I don't even know what we're going to call that particular relationship because it's – is it meant to humanize Frank? Because it kind of doesn't for me. It, right, it is no. so creepy and condescending and like – Tineered, everything about yeah. it was, and you, and and I wish the show had had uh, shown some distance from that condescension, right? By giving Freddie, who's yeah. played by Reg E. Kathy, yes. who I love, yes. and people might recognize from yeah, the, the wire. wire, right? Exactly. Um, He's fantastic, but he's never given a moment on his own no. to show any distance from Frank. Right, right. So he's just Frank's lackey, and yeah. Frank clearly pays him well. He shows yeah. up. He has a cup, you know, yeah. has a half rack of ribs or whatever, exactly. and then gives him a hundred bucks. And, right. So we can see why he would do it. Right. But he's never shown kind of being repelled at no, all. No, exactly. Or just I, I just want to see him give Frank the finger, you know. Just, just when Frank's back is turned and he doesn't, he's thinking, okay. Yeah. So, and and l- late in the season, Remy shows up at that, uh, it's, you know, at Freddy's. Right. I-, I would like to see more of Reg Cathy and maybe a little bit more of Remy. Right. And maybe there's something there. Yes, or, exactly. You know, I mean, exactly. those characters need to be developed a little bit more. Agreed. So, uh, I also thought we should talk a little bit about how we experience the show. Mm-hmm. W- what we think of this whole format. Right. I mean, both of us just burned through it. I was happy to do so. I realize I think I prefer watching shows this way. Um, I don't have cable. Mm-hmm. And I find it frustrating watching a show on a Monday or whatever. Right, Usually right. it's a Sunday. So yeah. watch a show on a Sunday and then wait a week right. to see the next one. Yeah. I mean, I who, who am a, a so I generally watch TV in the classic way because I like to watch shows when they're new. I, I did think that one of – you know. Netflix did it this way because this is Netflix's differentiator. You know, right. Netflix lets you watch things all at once. Thank you, Netflix. But um, to me, it's the easiest kind of it's the easiest show to get people to watch, especially to drop it on a Friday when there's real. We know there's nothing on on Friday or Saturday. It was winter, at least you know. And so on the East Coast, you know, there's less motivation than ever to go out. There aren't many good new movies opening. It was you know very good circumstances. Because really, all it has to do is—is is it good enough to say next? Right. To hit next, and if it is, you know, I didn't intend to watch the whole thing. I often spend an entire weekend sitting in front of the television watching different shows, but this was not how I had planned to spend the weekend. And so clearly, it was good enough to hit, keep me hitting next. But to me, it's much, much harder to, you know, make a show that will every Monday I'm going to come and see that. Maybe there'll be preemption one week for the. State of the Union, or maybe I'm going to have to pay attention to my TiVo programming because maybe this week there's another show that's conflicting at 9 p. You know, just all of that, it's such a higher level of difficulty. It's a right. much higher degree of difficulty to, to make a convent, to, for someone to 
buy in to a conventional show and watch every episode. Um, and so to me, it's, you know, they spent a lot of money on this. I thank them for that. But I don't know that they should get that much praise for keeping people hitting next. Right. I, I think you're right that that in itself is not a testament to the show's greatness. Yeah. Uh, it's maybe a testament to the show's quality. There's yeah. some baseline yeah. level that you it think, is. I want to watch more. Yes. Yes. But actually planning your schedule around and you know the next one right. and waiting a week right. is actually harder in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, I also think – you know, I'm curious whether you feel like you sacrificed a certain amount when it comes to, say, social media in particular, being on Twitter – uh, reading recaps and right, all of right, that right. stuff, I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it. And it, it you know, it's funny. I know that you uh, published on Browbeat a really funny piece on Friday by Sam Adams about the, the rules for uh, House of Cards spoilers. And because that, you know, typically I don't, I mean, I, I'm concerned about spoilers in a professional way. You know, when I do the Downton Abbey TV Club, I'm very careful not to put spoilers in headlines, for example. But if I'm, you know, June Schmo on social media and I'm watching a show, I'll go ahead and tweet about it unless it's something sensitive. I was a little circumspect because I was aware that you know, what's the timetable on this one? What are the rules? It was less clear. Um, but I no, I certainly didn't miss. And you know, I can read it now. It's, you know, right. it's all still fresh. It's not like coming back, you know, it's not like I'm watching I watched Breaking Bad first three or four seasons altogether, I might, you know, I could have gone back and caught up on maybe not the tweets, but, you know, the recaps and stuff. And But I didn't, you know. Yeah, when I when I like a show enough, I've gone back. Certainly with The Wire, I went back and, and read um, some coverage yeah, of the, yeah. first, few seasons, yeah, yeah. the first few seasons. Um, but I, I mean, I also, I should say for myself, though I am on Twitter and on all the time, I don't I don't tweet while I'm watching yeah, a TV yeah, yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not that interested You're in reading You're not as people's. much of a narcissist as I am. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'd yeah, say that. I would say that. <laughs> but um, so I didn't miss it either. And I think that, you know, Longer uh, reviews and and recaps that take in the whole season will start to appear yep. over the next week or so, yep. and I'll keep an eye out for them and I will read them. I'm curious to see mm-hmm. um, what people make of it. It's funny though. Um, I was a little kind of I had some fatigue in the end about all of the stories about Netflix's business model because there were an awful lot of them, but I kind of read a bunch of them too, and I almost think that it is the more interesting aspect of you know. The business story is more interesting than the story, even right. though, again, you know, like it was fine. I enjoyed it with some significant reservations, but it's just a, you know, a pleasant enough show. It's nothing special. There were some very, very, very good acting performances, but, you know, it's It didn't it's change okay. the way I think about Washington. No, exactly. No. Um, and whereas it may have changed the way I think about TV. So I think you're right that yeah. the business side is more interesting. And in some ways, I mean, we're, the real uh, test of this uh, is going to be Arrested Development in May right, right. because there's so much built up interest in that. And that is more unconventional, too. You know, this is a series. You didn't have to watch it all in one sitting. Some of us did. But it was a, sh- a show that kind of built from one episode to the next. Arrested Development apparently is going to be something, you know, choose your own adventure. Right. I which, think they may really explore the, yeah, the format in yeah, a way. Yeah. And that will be really interesting. I mean, I think that with this one, uh, like you said, it, it doesn't really break out of the, the kind of standard cable series format the way that it could and the way that Bo Willimon in, in some interviews has sort of implied mm-hmm, that it did. Oh, it's mm-hmm. a 13-hour movie, right. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's, it's very distinct episodes. Yeah. And they do vary uh, pretty widely in length. 
but you definitely feel the beginning and the end. Yeah. There are even sort of breaks within where you could imagine a commercial going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think it's more conventional than it needed to be. And I think in some countries it will air that way. I mean, um, I, you know, where Netflix operates, I think it will be on Netflix. But I can see it, you know, being dubbed into Danish and, you know, airing on Danish television, for example. Um, so for those markets, it will need to be a more standard show you know after this next few months it'll be just another show available on netflix right and in reading a bunch of those articles about what netflix was doing it occurred to me that um i mean i'm convinced that the reason they put it all out at once is because they wanted people to accept the fact that this is how tv is going to work yeah you know they want people to start getting used to the idea that you don't have to plan your schedule around it it's not on cable it's not on a certain day even though people do that with dvrs i think they really wanted they they, they're really investing in that shift in people's habits and ways of thinking about television yeah i've noticed you know whenever i've done a piece about Hulu, there are always posts in the comments that I'm 99% convinced are written by Netflix employees that say, why would I wait a week to watch a show? I like to watch all of the episodes at once. And, you know, I know that that is a a lot of people's preference, but it is just one way to experience television. It's not the future. It's it's a possibility. And it wasn't a possibility just a few years ago, but it's just one option. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel, too. Well, I'm glad that you, uh, like me, burned through this TV show <laughs> so we could discuss it soon rather than waiting until I later. I just think our uh, spoiler special lasts only about two episodes of House of Cards because we have gone on rather a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I hope that we can do another one uh, when Arrested Development comes up. Maybe with someone else. I'm not much of Arrested <laughs> Development person. Well, thanks for joining me, June. Uh, this was a Slate Spoiler Special. For June Thomas, I'm David Hagland. Thanks for listening. Very nice.